Welcome back to the Modern Cop Podcast. Took a short break there, back from Police Week. Uh, just, just hammering back at it. I was going to release an episode earlier this week. Uh, however, given everything that occurred uh, in Texas, I just didn't necessarily feel that it was appropriate. Uh, joining me today, retired NYPD detective and author, uh, Vic Ferrari. Vic, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Of course. And if I could... Um, uh, just for for us and for everybody listening, uh, just take a brief moment of silence and uh, and and out of respect and remembrance for uh, for those kids in Texas and their two teachers. Uh, really, just the the stupid loss of life. It it didn't need to happen. It shouldn't have happened. Um, it did. Um, so we'll we'll take a moment of silence here on the show and and uh, just let your thoughts kind of be with uh, be with the people who are without uh, without their kids and their families. Now, Vic, you uh, you spent 20 years with the NYPD. Um, uh, there is arguably no more storied police agency than the NYPD. Uh, the New York City Police Department is one of those legacy agencies. Uh, you know, people like me growing up wanting to be cops. Uh, I think it, it largely depends on which which coast you grow up on. Uh, being from California, uh, uh, my my fancy was always the LAPD. Uh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but the NYPD is, is another one of those agencies that, uh, uh, clearly, uh, being an author books are written about the NYPD, right? I mean, everybody knows it. It's a recognizable, uh, uh, really, I would, I would almost say it's recognizable throughout the world. I've got an, a couple NYPD patches up on the wall here. Um, uh, you know, the blue and gold, it, it stands out. Their officers stand out. Uh, their detectives stand out as being just a, a higher caliber uh, than than so many others with the resources, uh, their training and education. But it's not without uh, its shortcomings. We will, uh, as with any police agency, uh, we will get into all of that. But uh, first, Vic, I got to ask you a couple of questions, man, just so people can kind of get to know you a little bit. We're going to break the ice here um, uh, since you're, you're not here in person, which I've just finished rifle training. It's 106 degrees outside. Uh, I have not showered, so it's probably a good thing you're not sitting in this room with me. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't miss training. <laughs> it, it's not even bad. I mean, I am fortunate enough at my agency that we get to train inside of an air conditioned uh, uh, range, but uh, still, all you know, shooting and moving, and then as soon as you walk outside, it's like standing inside of a hair dryer. But uh, Vic, you can have a drink with anybody, living or dead. Who is it, and what are you drinking? That's a good question. There's so many people. Oh, God. Right off the top of my head, and I'm not giving this a lot of deep thought, probably Clint Eastwood. And he's alive. So, And probably a beer. I like it. I, I have to imagine that beers with Clint Eastwood would be very insightful. Um, I think that... Uh, uh, when you've led the life that Clint has led, um, you're going to have some pretty entertaining stories uh, about just the people in Hollywood, what he's been through. I, I want to know that uh, I want to know what he's kept from from his films. Right. What did he keep from Dirty Harry? What did he keep from his Westerns? Like, did he keep any memorabilia? So I like I have to imagine if you walk into Clint Eastwood's house, you, you probably see the poncho 
the Dirty Harry Revolver. He does have the poncho. He does have the poncho. He okay. Have, I saw an interview with that. He bought the poncho when he was going to Italy or Spain to film the, the trio of movies that he made, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. If you uh, can't think of them off the top of my head, but The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, he had he purchased that poncho in California and brought it with him. Oh, okay. And I Sergio Leone said, yeah, the director, Sergio Leone, said, yeah, that's great. Yeah, wear it. And he's had it ever since. So that, that he does have that piece of memorabilia because I heard him say it in an interview. Very cool. So that wasn't even like a set piece. That was something he saw and was like, I, I need that. That's coming with me. Very cool. Uh, and then uh, uh, interesting question I like to ask everybody, but especially an author uh, such as yourself with uh, uh, how many books have you written? You've got you've got five. No, I've got six. I've six, got one okay. right now. That's, um yeah, I'm bouncing it back and forth. It's in the editing process, so I just got it back from a copy edit. I got to thumb through it, and then I got to kick it back for a um, a proofread. So, yeah, I'll have my sixth book out in a couple of weeks. Nice, nice. And we'll get into that. But do you uh, do you find time to read still? Do you read other people's books, or, or are you kind of full bore into your writing? I love to read, but since I've gotten into reading, sad, since I've gotten into writing, sadly, I don't have the time, but I do like to read. I read, I love true crime. I love reading books about, you know, true crime cases, investigations. I'm not really a fiction guy. Um, I love, you know, New York City had the mafia and I worked on mafia cases. So I'm fascinated with that. I'm always reading books about the different families in New York. Um, right now, I, I'm like halfway through Tucker Carlson's uh, The Long Slide, which you know, you watch Tucker Carlson on television and you're like, he's really witty and insightful. And I always used to say, Jesus, the guys that write for him have to be brilliant putting that stuff in front of him. It's him. If you read any of his books, he's got such a great sense of humor. I mean, he's at, you, you, you get more of him in his books because it's more of his personality. And he's a brilliant writer. I will have to check out uh, the long slide there by Tucker, by Tucker Carlson. I've, I bounce back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, um, and especially within like the police procedural world. And admittedly, as far as police books go, uh, really limited uh, personally to Joseph Wamba. Uh, uh, though uh, your books are on Amazon, pretty easy for for folks like me to get it delivered straight to my front door, which it's it's going to be on my list uh, coming up here uh, this week. Um, and then uh, the true crime stuff, the organized crime has always been fascinating to me. My wife has asked me to never, ever, ever uh, conduct gang investigations, which I don't know that I get a say in the matter, uh, but uh, but we'll we'll work on a compromise there. But again, with that, that long history into organized crime with the mafia and all the different families, um, and uh, I have to imagine that that reading some of these books, um, do you learn anything from them or is it like, uh, more just for the entertainment value from, from your time in detectives? Well, a little of both, but I mean, I'm out of it now. Right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm no, I'm no longer in law enforcement. I've been out of law enforcement almost 15 years. So I guess it's, I just find it interesting. I mean, I, I was reading it while I was active, but, um, right now I just, I just find it fascinating. I keep tabs on a lot of these guys. I'm always looking up who's in jail, who's getting out, um, trying to pull stories up on him. It was just something I was involved in, so I, I find it interesting. 
Right. Right. Have any of your, uh, uh, and what we're going to end up inevitably kind of moving away from those icebreaker questions, but you said you've been out 15 years Have any of your cases, have you been subpoenaed back into court trying to enjoy retirement and you've got to head back up to New York or have you been pretty lucky in that regard? No, I've been pretty lucky. Um, I, uh, I mean, when I first retired, like the first couple of years, I get, um, I didn't have to go up to New York, but I, I got a couple of subpoenas and I called district attorney and I was able to provide answers, you know, or, you know, answer some questions. But no, I was on standby a couple of times, but no, I've never had to go up. That's good. Hopefully they just leave you the hell alone so you can enjoy your well, well-earned retirement. Uh, and you're no longer uh, you're no longer in New York. You're uh, a little ways south of there in some some warmer, sunnier weather. Um, you said you got out 15 years. What was your your sort of date range uh, for your 20 years at NYPD? 87 to 2007, 87 and, uh, to 2007. So uh, uh, a big thing that uh, that I want to hit on is is your involvement uh, and, and your own experiences with with NYPD in and around 9-11, uh, which is sort of a defining moment of my my childhood. Um, uh, very something I, I very vividly uh, remember. But before we we sort of move up into uh, the the 2000s and, and towards the latter part of your career there, what was it that that what did little Vic what what drew you uh, as a as a young man to be in an NYPD detective? Was it NYPD? Was it only NYPD? Or did you uh, look at the guys over at Port Authority and think oh, I could go over there? No, it was always NYPD. When I was a little boy, I was about five years old, and my grandfather went out to get the paper in a snowstorm. And about an hour later, he came back with two cops. He had broken his leg, and the two cops brought him home. And, you know, at five years old, I'm looking at these, you know, these tall guys in these blue uniforms, and every boy focuses on the gun like you're fascinated. And then a couple of years later, my mom would take my brother and I on the weekends to the movies, and around the block from the movie theater in my neighborhood was a police station. So every time we would go to the movie theater, I would run up to the police cars and stick my head, you know, like in the glass and, you know, look look at the equipment. I used to watch the cops in front of the station house, like the way they interacted, you know, how guys would lean, you know, uh, talk to each other with one hand, like leaning on the butt of their gun. So I knew what I wanted to do by 10 years old. And one of my books, people think it's, it's a joke, but it's a true story. By like 10, 11 years old, my friends and I used to go up to the post office and steal the wanted posters on the wall, like the FBI most wanted posters. <laughs> we'd steal them, and then we'd go around the neighborhood, like, you know, I'm holding, a, I'm holding a wanted poster for some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Kansas City, and I'm walking around the Bronx, like, you know, going up to people, like, this could be him. <laughs> so I knew what I wanted to do. You know, I, I grew up watching the Rockford Files and the French Connection and the 7-Up. I always wanted to be an NYPD cop and, and later detective. And my parents wanted me to go to college or they, they they didn't want me to put all my eggs in one basket. They weren't against me being a cop, but at the same time, they wanted me to have something to fall back on if, if I didn't make it, you know what I mean? Or I changed my mind or it wasn't for me, but um, no, I was a fish to water. I mean, I hit, I hit the ground running as soon as I got in there. And when you, when you start out in NYPD, cause I know some agencies are a little bit different. Uh, uh, and where I work is, is definitely more of uh uh, more heavily influenced, I would say, probably off of, uh, of how LAPD operates. Um, not in, in every respect, certainly. Uh, but I am curious to know, what is what does that initial pipeline look like? Uh, you graduate the academy. What are sort of the next steps for the newly minted NYPD officers? Well, lots change, but in the old days, right? So I was in a graduating class. It was a smaller class of 1,200. 
So, I mean, we hire in bulk, you know, sometimes <laughs> the classes are over 2000. So I was in a, I was in a medium class, I wouldn't say small, but 1200. So what they do is the guys and women, they, they try to get you as close as possible to your precinct. I mean, you're not going to work in the precinct where you live or the one next door, but if you're a Bronx guy, they'll try to keep you in the Bronx or Manhattan. If you're a Long Island kid, they'll try to keep you out in Queens and Brooklyn and so on and so forth. I wound up in the South Bronx. Back then, they had field training units. So it was myself and like 40 or 50 other rookies. We went to what's called NSU-7, which meant Neighborhood Stabilization Unit. And basically, you had there was a couple of sergeants in the training unit, and they would sprinkle us on foot posts. I mean, right out of the academy, they would sprinkle us on foot posts in the South Bronx. You got a radio, you got a nightstick, you got a gun, have at it. And, um, you know, if you, the sergeants would say, if you, you need us, call us. But, you know, reading between the lines, if you keep calling the guy every 15 minutes, you're going to be a pain in the ass. So we, we would get foot posts and we would just, you know, people would come up to you with their problems and you, you had to figure it out. It was baptism by fire. And then occasionally, They'd put two rookies in the car with the sergeant. You would go on calls like DOAs and because there's so much the NYPD is responsible for. So very, but I remember like getting dropped off on a foot post in the South Bronx and there was abandoned buildings as far as the eye could see. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, it's like there's crackheads walking by, <laughs> you know, with lamps and clothing they're trying to sell. I mean, it was, you know, as the sun's setting, the light, I could see cutting through the abandoned buildings because there's no windows and you could see crackheads inside, like, you know, cooking on a makeshift stove with a fire. So it was really, you know, um, I had to learn quick. You know what I mean? It's like, I remember one time I saw a couple of junkies in a vacant lot with a fire and I thought they were just cooking. But what they were doing was they would steal cable. They would steal like, you know, electrical cable. They take it to a vacant lot. They'd set it on fire. They'd burn off all the plastic. They'd let it cool. And then they would throw the metal in a shopping cart and bring it to a scrap metal processor. It's just, there was just so much going on in New York. I mean, just where people hide their drugs. And I mean, in New York City, is there's 9 million people. So it's a very populated place. And there's just, there's just things coming at you so fast that you really, you got to figure things out very quickly. Sure. And vastly different experience from my own. I mean, hell, your graduating class at the academy is four times, uh, if not a little more than four times the size of the agency I work for. Uh, we our badge numbers run sequentially and we're not even in the thousands yet. Uh, so how many how many officers are there in NYPD ball ballpark? Any given time between 35,000 and 40,000. So that's a good attendance at, at a Yankee game on a Friday night. Holy shit. I can't even count that high. I knew it was a lot, but damn, I didn't know it was going to be between 35 and 40,000 uh, sworn officers. Um, and, and so you start out on, on foot, uh, which is, again, for in Arizona, uh, we'd have heat casualties if we made officers walk you know, <laughs> here's a walking beat. I did have a supervisor uh, frequently threaten me with a walking beat. Uh, and it was one of those, as you mentioned, the pain in the ass. If you call me one more time, I'm going to put you on a foot patrol beat in downtown and you're just going to hang out there. Um, uh, never did end up having to uh, to go work a foot patrol beat. Um, oh, so in New York, like with the foot post, right? Like if you had a scumbag sergeant, like some of most of the sergeants were all right. You know, if you had a shitty foot post or something and, and it was cold or snowing, they know you're going to hide and they'll hit you up on the radio. It's called a scratch in New York. So if you've got a foot post, the supervisor is going to come by once, maybe twice during the day or night. 
you're going to salute him. He's going to come up to the car. Any problems? No. And he signs your book. You were, you were on post at 1300 hours. It's just, you know, it's stuff that you're in a bar somewhere. They, they, they keep tabs on you. And, um, like in the old days, like the old time sergeants, like the real nasty ones, they didn't like rookies. What they would do in like the winter or a snowstorm or something, they'd come out. And the first thing that you walk up to the car with your metal book, he'd reach out the window and grab your shield. If the shield was cold, he knew you were outside. If the shield was warm, he knew you were hiding, hiding inside one of the buildings. So th- there was like tricks to the trade. It was actually like cat and mouse with a lot of these supervisors. Unreal. Uh, things that I would never, ever think of, uh, you know, seeing if, if your shield was was cold or warm. I mean, I guess it makes sense. But there and again, I, I work somewhere where it doesn't snow. It gets chilly, but it doesn't get like super cold. And you're out there and just driving blizzards having to stand post. Yeah. And we were talking about like, you know, the supervisor getting bent out of shape. There was a guy I worked with. He wasn't a bad guy, but he was one of these guys, very unsure of himself, always calling the supervisor. And the supervisor basically told him, stop calling me every five minutes. Well, he gets a foot post in a shitty neighborhood and it's a drug prone location. And, you know, you got a cop on a foot post, drug sales go down. So it goes back and forth that, you know, the drug dealers are messing with him. He's messing with the drug dealers. So he he. Cops in New York, you always got your back against the building because you don't want anybody to sneak up on you. So he's standing against the building and he takes a step off the building. He starts walking down the street and he hears something scream, go screaming by his head. Someone threw a cat off the roof at him. <laughs> cat hits the ground and explodes. He gets on the radio and he's calling, you know, he's a rookie cop. He doesn't know anybody. He's calling for the fucking cavalry, right? Calls the 1013, which in New York means, you know, get here as quickly as possible. Cars are rolling up. Sergeant pulls up. What do you got? What do you got? Slow it down, right? And he's like, he threw a fucking cat off the roof at me. And the sergeant goes, do I look like fucking sanitation? Go call fucking sanitation and have him wash the fucking thing off. Stop bothering me. You guys just drove off. So, I mean, that was then. Nowadays, it's now it's gone. Now it's the opposite. They don't trust you to do anything. Nowadays, with the rookie cops, what they do in New York is, and I think this is detrimental to a young cop's learning, they put eight cops in a van with a sergeant, and it's like a gang. And they drive around looking for summonses. There's a guy pissing in the hallway. Stop. Everybody gets out of the van. They give the guy a summons. And the optics are bad for that because someone looks out their window and they see eight cops giving a guy a summons. It's like, well, shouldn't they be doing something else? But that's because the NYPD with Comstat has gotten addicted to the statistics. Mm-hmm. So they have these these um, therapy sessions where how many summonses did you write? How many summonses in your zone? Well, last quarter you had eight beer drinking summonses. This this this, this this um, cycle, you've only got five. It's like, well, maybe the job, maybe maybe we've corrected the problem. The, the, the problem with the NYPD with their statistics is they never know when to take their foot off the gas. If you're sick, God forbid, and you have cancer and you go for chemotherapy, and after the chemotherapy, you're fine, you don't keep going back for chemotherapy. Right. The NYPD's got this habit of carpet bombing something until they piss off the neighborhood because they get addicted to the statistics. And I think that that... You see that in a lot of places. I mean, uh, agencies, I think, all around the nation are, are driven by statistics. It drives your budget and what you promote or propose to the city council. It drives within the department who gets what bodies. Uh, you know, it's a finite resource, right? I mean, you even with a, an agency as large as the NYPD, you graduate a class of 1,200. Even as you said, that's more of that small to medium sized class. You're not filling all the vacancies you needed to fill. My graduating class, of which for my agency, I was the only police officer to graduate that class. I was the only one who went to the academy that particular 
uh, class cycle. Um, but we just, we can't fill those, those, we can't fill the, the vacancies with just bodies on top of bodies, you know, where we have cops falling over themselves. Uh, hopefully one day we'll get there. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that won't be too fun. Um, you know, take, take some of the joy out of the job. Cause then you can't complain about something as much, but, uh, um, yeah, but uh, you get these these statistic driven uh, supervisors when, in fact, if you go back to Robert Peel and the Peelian principles, all, all really that it boils down to is uh, your your success is measured uh, not in like the number of arrests. It's not measured by statistics It's measured in the decline of a crime uh, or, or, you know, the right. overall crime. So, uh, I mean, I get it. I get where the where the cop stand comp stat stuff comes from. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it all, but uh, I am just at all. At all. I, I am but a humble detective. I will just do my job. <laughs> well, but here's the thing. So like my last, my last, so I worked in the auto crime division my last 10 years. I was very active. But like my last year, I became uh, a victim of my own success because I was there so long and I knew all the programs and systems. Like my lieutenant was a great guy. He was terrified of getting called down to police plaza for one of these Comstat sessions and not having the right answer. He would lock me in the computer room for like days. Print this out, print this out. Can you get the statistics on this? Just in case they had, they asked him a question and he didn't want to get caught off guard because in those Comstat sessions, if you don't have the right answer, they'll bounce you out of your command. You know what I mean? Like, and, and they'll fuck with you too. So say you, you, you work in Queens, you or you working in the Bronx and you and you live up in Rockland County, which is forty miles north, they'll send you to fucking Staten Island. They'll give you like a hundred and fifty mile commute every day, you know what I mean, to break your ball. So it, the problem with the NYPD too is it's civil service up to the rank of captain. And there's so many units in the NYPD, unfortunately, there's a lot of places to hide. And you get these people that they really don't want to be cops. They see themselves as managers. So they don't learn the job. They go to these cake precincts or cake units. They do no street time whatsoever and they study and they pass a sergeant's exam and they go and hide and then they study for the lieutenant's exam. And you'll have a guy that's a lieutenant or a captain, you know, with eight arrests, right? Guys, the guy's been to central booking eight times in his life. Doesn't know how to talk to people. Doesn't know how to diffuse situations. He's been hiding because he's a coward or he just sees himself as more than just a cop. And what winds up happening is you've got, you've got all these people in management positions that don't know the job. And then they start beating up on the people that are doing the work. And then basically they go dead because it's like, I'm not going to get my balls broken by this guy. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. So, I mean, thank God there's a lot of, well, I mean, when I was there, there was a lot of pushback on that, but uh, I don't know what's going on now. Do you still have any, uh, um, having retired in 2007, do you still have, have buddies that are working up there that uh, you can kind of bend their ear or is everybody that, that you were close with pretty much retired? Yeah, the last of the Mohegans are basically gone. There was a guy I was in the police academy with. I think he's the last one. He was a sergeant. He just got out last year. We we're very close. But off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody that's active that I worked with. I'm sure there is. Like if I went into the Bronx tomorrow and started driving around, I'd probably recognize a couple of guys and go, holy shit. You're still on the job, right? But um, off the top of my head now. Okay, I got you. Um, do you uh, do you make it back up to New York with any sort of frequency, or are you you kind of done? I mean, oh. <laughs> no, my after my parents passed, 
I sold the house and, you know, I, I've, I've been in Florida. I haven't been to New York in like nine, 10 years. Do you miss it? I miss, I miss the food. I miss the excitement of New York. I miss, I miss what I, w- I, I miss what I w- used to be able to do. I miss the car chases. I miss the action. I miss doing interesting cases. Do I miss being told what to do? Or what I see on television, how New York has kind of slid into decline. No, I, I, I'd be sad. I think it would depress the shit out of me if I went back up to New York and saw what's going on up there, especially like my old neighborhood. I think it would bother me. Yeah, well, and and looking back, I mean, seeing seeing what what New York is is kind of up to nowadays. And again, I, I have no disrespect towards the citizens of New York City. I'm not from there. I have been there exactly one time, and it was uh, almost 20 years ago. Um, but uh, but having been a New Yorker your whole life, now you're kind of uh, uh, seeing it to use one of the titles of your book through the looking glass. I mean, what are your thoughts on on kind of the current state of New of New York? Not ju- not just from policing, uh, but but sort of overall. Well, all right. So when I got hired, we had a guy by the name of Ed Koch. He was Democrat. He's very liberal, but he liked cops. He was very supportive for a Democrat. He was, he was very supportive of cops. He, and he, he, we got our raises and he was always backing us, but he didn't really understand crime. Then we had the late, great David Dinkins that just ignored crime and New York slid into the abyss. And what was unusual was that Rudy Giuliani got elected because Rudy was a Republican, but desperate times called for desperate measures. So New York voted Republican. And to Rudy's credit, Rudy was a great, I mean, he kept a lot of shit now, but Rudy was a great mayor for New York. I mean, he did bring in the ComStat program, but it worked at first. It's knowing when to take your foot off the gas. And we had eight years of Rudy, which was good. Then we had Bloomberg, who was a multimillionaire, if not billionaire. He was smart. He's a liberal and a progressive, but he was smart enough to see that Rudy's program worked. So he kept things in place. And Bloomberg was also a genius financially with the bond rating and everything. So he kept New York City solvent. What happened is New York went from being a dump to, you know, sex in the city and everybody seeing how great New York is. And what happens is we got a lot of hipster schmucks move in. And you got a lot of young people that move into New York City that they, they know they think they know New York from watching television. And then they come in and... They have different ideas how New York should be, and they vote differently. And that's when you got de Blasio in there, who had no interest in New York whatsoever. I mean, de Blasio basically ran New York City into the ground. Now, the funny thing is, and I get a kick out of it, is the new mayor of New York is this guy who's a former NYPD member, Eric Adams. Eric Adams made a career of blasting New York. Like, Eric Adams was hired after me, but he stayed longer than me. But I mean late 80s, 90s, 2000s, Eric Adams was like one of these guys who was always being quoted in the paper that the NYPD is racist and the city is wrong and blah, blah, blah. Just always just, you know, he, 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 um, he ran and he was in this organization called uh, the Guardians. And I think it was another one called, and if I'm, if I'm saying this incorrectly, it's because I just don't remember. I think it's called 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement, if memory serves me correctly. But he was always up front just denouncing New York City and, and, and the city's racist. The NYPD doesn't do enough and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? He's mayor now. So you know what? Have at it because you had all these ideas and how New York was being run poorly. 
you're in the driver's seat, you know, and I hope I, I'm not a fan, but you know, Jesus at, at this point, anybody, you know, I wish them all luck in the world really, because there's a lot of good people still left in New York and they deserve better. Yeah. It's, it's cops are famous and I'll do it for looking at people outside of law enforcement saying, don't tell me how to do my job because you've never done my job. You don't know what it's like to get shot at. You don't know what it's like to face off against a crackhead in a mall right. with a screwdriver who knows that he's got a felony warrant, probably for something stupid because he stole a certain dollar amount and he's willing to put a, a knife in your neck over it. You don't know what it's like to have to tell your wife and your kids, hey, I can't come home on time for dinner tonight. Um, all right. Well, that one's maybe not too fair. There's a lot of corporate jobs that that steal people's souls away from them. Um, but but politicians is one of those jobs that I don't know shit about what you do. Uh, and I don't envy your job. I'll bitch about it because I'm really good at that. Um, but uh, like, I don't envy the president of the United States. I'm no great big fan of of President Biden, uh, but I sure as hell don't ever want to be sitting in the Oval Office because that doesn't sound like a good time to me. I already have gray hair. I don't need more. Yeah, what do they say? The three hardest jobs in the world uh, is um, the president of the United States, the mayor of New York City, and the head coach of Notre Dame football. <laughs> and, I, that's again, not mine, but I heard it somewhere. I don't want any of those jobs. That doesn't sound like any, no. any fun to me whatsoever. Uh, I got to ask because uh, uh, I was talking to my mother-in-law yesterday. My mother-in-law and my father-in-law, both from uh, New York City. My father-in-law, uh, and I may get this backwards, my father-in-law from Long Island, my mother-in-law from the Bronx. Uh, maybe it's the other way around. But my mother-in-law is on a, here in Arizona, is on a never-ending quest for good Chinese food because New York has the best Chinese food. My wife uh, judges pizza, um, and there's a lot of places that I used to eat, again, growing up in Arizona and California, that we no longer go get pizza from. So serious stuff aside for just a moment, in Florida, have you found good Chinese food, good pizza, good shawarma, whatever it is that, that you enjoyed? Or is there just nothing that holds a candle to the food in New York City? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. And luckily for me, I'm a good cook. But now the food, I mean, listen, and I know I'm going to catch it for this, but I'm sorry. The food in, in, in New York is so much better than Florida. And I was spoiled. I worked for a while with a six foot five, 300 pound Chinese detective who I used to call Bok Choy, my humble Asian sidekick. And he would refer to me as Lo Fan, which means evil white ghost. <laughs> and we would, go down to, we would go down to Chinatown and we would go into these restaurants and I'd is this like like it's like a nondescript place and he would go lo fun you eat like you eat with tourists he goes no no and we would go into these places and he'd start barking at the waiter in cantonese like is the peking duck fresh bring us this bring us that like you know it was like not going to the tourist places but i'll, I'll give a plug there's a chinese restaurant in manhattan and it's right around the block from bronx central booking it's called um shanghai joe's oh my god you sit at these big tables and they bring out these steam things of steam dumplings. You can get pork, crab, beef. And I mean, they're soup dumplings. And I mean, they are to die for. And then after you eat, go right around the corner to Baxter Street. You'll see this large gate. Just hang out there for a couple of minutes and you'll see police cars pull up. They'll come out with prisoners. They'll bang on the gate. The gate opens. It's like something out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The gate opens up. They walk in, the gate closes. It's the entrance to um, Manhattan Central Booking. And they use that gate in a lot of movies. Like if you ever see like in movies, like where someone's coming out of prison, 
that's the gate they use a lot of times in Manhattan on Baxter Street. So if you're ever in Chinatown in Manhattan, go to, go to um, what did I say, Shanghai Joe's, and right around the corner on Baxter Street, you'll see that gate. Just hang out. You'll see a narcotics van pull up. You'll see like 30 guys come out on a daisy chain, you know, like a bunch of, you know, drug addicts going in. It's, it's, it's like a show within a show, really, and it's free. <laughs> Enjoy your Chinese food. Walk around the corner under Baxter Street. Hang out. Then you get your after dinner show to uh, sit there. Oh yeah. Food, enjoy oh, yourself. You don't have to stand. You don't have to stand at that gate for five minutes. And it's like, a, especially like on a weeknight, a weekend night. It's uh, I, it's, I talking to you for thirty two minutes, and I already feel the need to go tell my wife to book us some flights back to New York so I can go around and, and see some of the uh, see some of the sites there and maybe some of the not so well-known sites. I've been told by a, a buddy of mine uh, who has a few friends in NYPD that uh, if you're ever visiting New York, uh, get to talking to some of the, the cops on the street and they will point you in the direction of the best food in town uh, or the areas okay. to stay away from, things like that. So I, I learned... But stay away from the rookies. Like if you go up to a cop and he looks like his uniform, he just came out of a box, looks like a Ken doll. <laughs> you know, like the uniform's got no wear on it. The cop looks 13 years old. He's not going to know where to eat. Just try to grab some grizzled looking cop. An older guy will be the one to tell you where to eat. Don't ask a rookie because you're going to get pissed off. He's, gonna, he's not going to know where to send you. I did, uh, I did learn early on to, uh, if you want to know where to eat, you eat where the fire trucks and the police cars go. So... Uh, and and out, out here, I was going to say out here, maybe not so much the police cars. A lot of our guys are just like grabbing and go, just, you know, sit in your car, eat, drive a hundred miles an hour on the freeway, uh, with due regard for public safety, just cause I know that there's admin people listening to this and eat a burrito with one hand. Um, uh, I've never done that, but I've heard of it being done. So, <laughs> Uh, so you, you start out on a on a walk and beat there. Uh, your last ten years were in were in uh, auto theft. Uh, what what does your career look like though? What are those twenty years from eighty seven to 07? What does that look like? After I got a field training, um, I worked in the priest in the four two precinct, which they filmed the movie Fort Apache the Bronx with Paul Newman and Ed Asner. That movie is supposed to be about the old four one, but the four one was so burned out, Fort Apache became Little House on the Prairie, as we used to call it. So they filmed it in the 4-2, but the 4-2 was burned out too. I worked there for a while. I worked in a unit called Bronx Task Force. I got thrown in the DUI unit as a, as a young cop, and I absolutely hate it because there's no winning dealing with drunks. They're either happy, which is rare. They're either crying. They're pissing on themselves. They're combative. They want to fight. They're going to the hospital because they're, you know, they, they've had so much alcohol in their system that they have alcohol poisoning. I got out of that. I went back to a precinct. I worked in a plainclothes unit for a while doing like pickpockets and robberies in progress. I went to the narcotics division for about a year and a half. I absolutely hated it because in New York, the narcotics division, it's volume. You're locking up 10, 15 people a day. It's like, it's like a conveyor belt. And working in narcotics in New York in, in the 90s, um, the early 90s, you're always afraid of getting hepatitis or AIDS because that was running rampant back then. And you're searching 10, 15 guys and women at a time. And I remember during that time period, I always had a cold. You were always getting over a cold because you're locking up street people. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the garden variety, hand to hands on the street. They're all junkies and drug addicts. They're selling 10, 15 vials for a free one. So that's how they get paid. And they, you know what I mean? They, they get paid in drugs. So they're living out in the street. They're all fucked up. I got out of that. And then I went into the auto crime division, which I, I mean, I was always a car guy. I grew up in a neighborhood where 
you know, car, stealing cars were off, you know, off the hook. And in the early, and in the nineties, New York City averaged one hundred and fifty thousand stolen cars a year. So it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, just driving around with a computer car, you could pick off stolen cars. It was it was like going to a great fishing spot. You, you could just get them. Like I was always in car chases, and I love that shit. Car chase is something I've never been in five uh, five years, a little more than of uh, law enforcement. It just doesn't happen. I, I say I say it doesn't happen. In my, I've been a detective for a year and a half. It's not going to happen in my current role. But even on patrol, there was one time where I could have justified getting into a pursuit, but the sergeant shut it down. Um, uh, with I'm sure you know, uh, with with good reason. But it's uh, I, I hear I hear talk. Uh, you know, uh, veteran officers and and retired officers talk about car chases, and I always get a little jealous. So. You do have me uh, sitting here a little bit starstruck because you got to do the you got to do the cool stuff that we all signed up for. <laughs> I've been in. I know people got to say he's full of shit, but I I've had to have been in close to a hundred car chases, if not more, either that I started or got involved in. Like the dirty little secret with the NYP, and again, things might have changed, but when I was a cop, they didn't want us chasing stolen cars, but we did. And the dirty little secret was. If you caught them and nobody got hurt, no harm, no foul, no one was going to look to, you know, to, to screw you. But it, if someone really got hurt, a civilian got hurt, or the bad guy wound up dying, or the cop got hurt in a car, they're going to cut your balls off. But, but we did it anyway. And like you said, they would come over the super, it was a game. You'd put over, if you knew what you were doing, you're putting over a car chase, like New York is very populated, right? So, if I'm putting over a car chase, you don't start yelling into the radio. You talk. Central, I'm following a 16 vehicle. We're going north on Webster Avenue at 178th Street. You know, and then, you know, but Central, you could hear the siren in the background. The sergeant will go, is that unit pursuing negative Central? And like, what's your location? 212th and Webster. So now you just passed 30 blocks in 10 <laughs> seconds. It's obvious you're in a chase. And over the radio, as you're talking, you can hear the fucking wheels screaming, right? So then the sergeant, then the sergeant knows what you're doing, and he'll come over. He goes, "Central, is that unit in pursuit? Trying to buy you a little time?" And you're like, "No, Central." Now, a duty captain who's like always flying around, he'll immediately jump on that radio and he'll start. But then guys start stepping on, which they start keying the mic. So when he tries to, when when a supervisor tries to shut down the car chase, you got to realize something. Like in the Bronx, there's 12 police stations, right? just 12 precincts in, in the Bronx, which is a small borough. And on any division, there's any division is on a radio. There's three or four precincts, right? So you've got on a Friday night, you're in a car chase. There's literally, there could be 60, 70 guys on that radio, right? So when that supervisor starts trying to cancel, shut down that car chase, guys start keying the radio. So this way, if something happens, you say, I, I didn't hear him. You know what I mean? I'm not saying it's right. I'm just telling you it happened. Nobody wants to hear it, but it did. Um, you know, I got in a couple of chases where I got pulled aside. You know, what the fuck is the matter with you? So, you know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And then, you know, you could just go do it again. But uh, what are you going to do? Let everybody go? So, I mean, we used to get into chases all the time. 
I'm still jealous. <laughs> it, it, that's all it's going to come down to is me being being jealous the entire rest of uh, of uh, what is it, Memorial Day weekend here, being like, man, I never got to get into any car chases. <laughs> I've seen people jump out of stolen cars while the thing is still running. Uh, seen driving the yards through fences. A guy was chasing a Dodge Caravan. He got he jumped the sidewalk. He was running the length of the sidewalk and he got wedged between the fence. And in New York, you got the lamppost with these big green boxes on the side that controls the traffic control device. And it sheared. If there would have been a passenger, the car would have killed him. It just sheared the side of the passenger side of the Dodge Caravan, just like stopped him. And then he jumped out the door and started taking his clothes off and jumping the fences. We caught him anyway. But we, I mean, just all the time. Again, I don't know what goes on now, but back then it was a lot of fun. Sure, sure. Well, and, and but that's the stuff of of NYPD legend, right? That's the stuff that we see on TV. Even like, hey, guilty as charged. I'm sitting here as a police officer. I don't really watch cop TV shows anymore, but growing up, I sure as hell did. Um, yeah. And and that's the stuff you always see, and that's the stuff that that uh, you know that uh, you know little boys and little girls that want to be police officers or they want to be cops they watch that and they're like that looks like a whole lot of fun and then you get bitch slapped by a supervisor <laughs> so <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh yeah well you knew who to stay away from you know there were guys that you know would let you get away with a little more and then there were guys like you cut your balls off so you just kind of lay low with them but it just like i said in new york like we would just drive around and in the old days with like the general motors product the steering wheel had a long neck steering column. So if you're driving around, we'd look. And if you saw a bandana or a towel wrapped around the steering column, chances are someone broke it with a hammer and pushed the pins and started the car. Or you'd see like a car with like one key in the ignition. Like, come on, everybody's got a house key or something. You right. can see one key and that'd be a plate to run. Or, you know, those tires, you get a flat and you got those, that little bullshit balloon tire that's good for 40 miles, but like the drug addicts and junkies and kids will drive for 400 miles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you, those, there, were, there were things that would just like draw our attention to, to stolen cars. And that's uh, safe to say that's where you had the most fun? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like nonstop. So uh, I got to, before we get into your books, I do uh, uh, more for my own curiosity. Uh, you worked through the 93 World Trade Center bombing. You worked through 9-11. What did the 93 World Trade Center, for those that, that don't maybe know or, or hadn't really been been aware of the 93 one, and Vic, correct me if I get it wrong, some asshole parks a, uh, like a van in the parking structure and detonates a bomb. Is, is I, is, am I understanding it correctly? Yeah, it was the same type of bomb that Tim, Timothy McVeigh used to, to level the uh the uh, Oklahoma City bombing is a fertilizer bomb in a U-Haul truck. Yeah, the World Trade Center had this tremendous underground parking garage. And what these guys did was, and they, they were linked with Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, they parked the U-Haul truck down in there and they didn't, fortunately, they didn't have enough from, I think it's called ammonia, nit ammonia nitrate. They, they, they created it, but they didn't, I, I, I was working that day, I think that was a Thursday or Friday. It was the winner. I remember that, but I, I didn't go down for that one. I mean, I was down on nine eleven. So, and and let's just then uh, then jump into that. Um, you are one of two people that I have had the chance to speak with. The first guy I talked to had been an FDNY captain, uh, and I didn't have. A, I was a teenager when I talked to him. So, you're the first person to come on this show with any direct firsthand knowledge of nine eleven. Um, walk me through that day. It was a Tuesday. It was election day. Really nice day. It was a perfect day. 
And uh, that particular day, my office was in the Bronx. I had court that morning in Manhattan, which is literally a couple of blocks from the Trade Center. And I had arrested this guy for a couple of stolen cars. And uh, he was good. he was in jail and he wanted to give up a DMV employee in Manhattan that was pumping out driver's licenses. So my sergeant and I were supposed to go down to court. We were supposed to be at court at nine o'clock in the morning. We we're going to sit down with a district attorney and his and the defense attorney. It's called Queen for a day where they, we, they pull the guy out of corrections. And basically short of murder, you're not going to charge him with anything he talks about. Can't be used against him. And if his information was good, we were going to get him sprung and we we're going to use him as a confidential informant. And probably myself or an undercover was going to go into DMV and get buy a couple of driver's licenses. And then we'd lock up the DMV employee. So again, we we're supposed to be down there by nine o'clock in the morning. It's now eight o'clock in the morning. My sergeant's nowhere to be found. About eight fifteen, he comes breezing into the office. And I'm like, dude, we got to get down. We got to drive all the way into Manhattan. It's a pain in the ass. And we got to go find parking. He goes, yeah, yeah. Let me just do a couple of things. So I'm getting bent out of shape because I don't want to keep the district attorney waiting. And uh, the next thing you know, one of the cops from downstairs comes running into our office and says, put on the news. A plane hit the World Trade Center. So we put the television on. We're watching it like everybody else. And here comes the second plane. Boom. So we knew it was terrorism at that point. They said, get in uniform, stand by. And by about 1, 1.30 in the afternoon, I was down there like walking around. And it was chaos. They didn't know what to do with us. They handed us these little bullshit paper masks that you would get at Home Depot if you demo in your bathroom. And uh, they we walked down, I think it was down Broadway, and it was like something out of a movie because the sunlight, the closer you got to it, the sunlight really wasn't getting through the particles of debris. So it was like a weird haze. And you had all this asbestos and crap just covering everything it looked like it looked like someone spray it looked like a movie was being made and the one thing i will never forget coming down broadway was the thousands upon thousands of pairs of women's shoes because you had all these women that worked in the trade center and wall street in the financial district when they were trying to get out of there they couldn't run in heels so they took their shoes off and just fucking threw them in the street so we were walking down there it was like holy shit like just thousands of pairs of women's shoes all over the place and when we got up to, to really like, the, you know, the, the World Trade Center, what was the World Trade Center, it was like that scene in Planet of the Apes where you see like the Statue of Liberty head. Like I saw the facade and I'm like, holy shit. It just, it didn't, it's, by that point in my career, I had like 13, 14 years in already. So I had seen a lot, but I mean, it's like a, being a kid and seeing something and not understanding how something works. It's just like, I don't get this. And nothing made sense. Like, some guy walked by in a fucking, like a Tyvek suit with a Geiger counter. Like, who the fuck is this? Like, was he with the government? Was he a guy from New Jersey that had a Geiger counter <laughs> that just was waiting for this day? Like, we didn't stop him. You know what I mean? Like, there was just too much going on. And uh, I was down there that day from 1.30 in the afternoon, and then we got cut 5.30, 6.30 in the morning, something like that. Told us, go home, throw your clothes in the washing machine. And uh, be back up in the Bronx office tomorrow at 5.30. We're doing this all over again. And I was down there the first couple of days, nonstop, 12, 13, 14-hour shift. Then they pulled us out. And then um, since I worked in auto crime, they had us at the dump because they were taking all the vehicles, the police cars, the fire trucks, and then other vehicles that were parked around that got crushed. They had us, like, chopping them open with, like, the jaws of life and stuff to make sure there wasn't anybody trapped. Plus, they were also concerned people were going to start putting in insurance claims on cars that didn't really belong, that weren't there. 
So they had us kind of doing that aspect of it. But I mean, it was fucking wild. And I remember like a couple of days after, like well, maybe a week or two after when I was down there, we were doing the bucket brigade. So what we, it, so it looked like we looked like ants, like on a pile of sugar. So it'd be rows of us in a line and one guy would fill up a bucket with debris and it would go down the line and it would get dumped in something and then it would go out to the dump and then they would run that stuff on a conveyor belt and pick through it looking for people's ID, personal belongings. But like after a couple of weeks, it started raining. So what happened was you got, I mean, I hate to say this, but it was like a blender of, of, of humanity in there. And then it starts raining on that and then it dries and then it rains. It was the worst odor of anything. It was like DOA times a million. You know what I mean? It was just that bad down there. Just the smell of humanity and everything else down. There. It was bad, but, um, you know, we got through it. Um, you know, it, it, there was just a lot of shit down there that didn't make sense while we were down there. It's just, um, nothing could prepare you for it, I guess. No, I don't, I don't think that anything, even, even work, I, I would say working, uh, uh, a catastrophe such as that, you would probably be that much more prepared for God forbid if it ever happened again. But like somebody like me still very much in the, in the youth of my career, I got five years on 20 to go. Um, it would still, I don't know that I would be able to, uh, manage the chaos any better than anybody else. Uh, you know, I, I probably work with, uh, you know, lieutenants and commanders who have been cops for, for 20 years that, uh, if something like that happened where we lived, there would still be, uh, an element of chaos. I don't know that you could ever eliminate that but so much was learned from that chaos of 9-11 i mean we've got a new phone system at work now and in talking to the guys uh it's an at&t product called FirstNet, and the whole point of it is they were like yeah on 9-11 the radios weren't you couldn't get radio traffic out if you did it was like a, a, you won a fucking lottery uh because there was there were so many communications issues and so they were resorting to using cell phones still, you know, cell phones in the early 2000s, uh, you know, still sort of te technology in its infancy, if you will. Um, but they're stuck on, you know, you're, you're waiting, you get a busy signal every time you pick up the phone. Um, so I would say a lot was learned so that cops like me, those of us who have come in after 9-11 can, can have, um, you know, maybe a few more tools in the toolbox. But I, I if I walked up, if I'd been standing next to you walking walking down Broadway looking at the facade and I can I can kind of picture what you're talking about because I've I've seen the pictures of it I've seen the documentaries um but I, I was 10 when 9/11 happened and I don't know uh, that I, I don't know that I could ever accurately describe it to my my son should he ever ask me about it there's there's really no way to truly convey what you witnessed no, we were talking about the phone. Our radios work just fine because I think our repeaters were on top of one police plaza, which, you know, wasn't touched, but the cell phones went down because I couldn't, you know, it's like, I, you know, I felt terrible for my parents because they didn't know what happened to me for like a day. Like I came home, it was a funny, because I lived in a building down the block from my parents. Like my father was like looking out that window when I came home, you know, and he come around and goes, oh God, because we didn't know what happened to you. And I go, I said, I couldn't call I says, the, the, my cell phone's been down all day. So, yeah, there was a lot. I mean, we, you're right. A lot was learned. 
Um, I'll tell you a couple other wild shit. So like a day or like two days later, a couple of blocks, literally from the World Trade Center, there was a camper with a bunch of Chicago cops. Like, how the fuck did they get down here in like 24 or 48 hours? Like, they must have blew every light and done 100 miles an hour. Like, there was a bunch of cops from Chicago that just jumped into a Winnebago. And they were literally like camped out like blocks from the World Trade Center. And then like, like I said, in the coming days, I remember the second day going down there, guys wrote, fuck you, Bin Laden. Like in, in like in the car windows, like they were covered with dust. You'd see like "fuck you, Bin Laden." It was just there was just a lot of wild shit down there. But um, you know who doesn't get a lot of credit for that? And and I've never heard anyone ever say this except myself. The iron workers and the construction workers of New York. You know, yeah, the cops and the firemen were there. We were doing rescue stuff, but that that place would still be um, a mess if it wasn't for those iron workers and construction workers were down there day one with heavy equipment and compressors and pulling shit out. And I mean, they don't get any credit for it. And a lot of them are dying of cancer like everybody else. But um, those, those iron workers and construction workers, man, they, they did a lot of work down there. They don't get credit for it. I think I was in, in New York in 2004. I think it was 2004. And my aunt walked me. It was, uh, um, my aunt didn't have any kids and my sister's nine years older than me. But when we hit about 14, each of us, she took us on a trip to New York city. Um, and I can remember the fence was up. The green netting was all around the fence. So you couldn't, yeah. really, couldn't really look down in, into the pit, but there was a time when I was able to get in, you know, get close and kind of look down in there. And again, not even at the age of, of 13 or 14, truly not comprehending what I was looking oh, yeah. at. Um, uh, but still, you know, this immense feeling of, of just fucking sadness. It's, I, I don't know what it's like now. I, I would love to get back there. I told my wife that when we go to New York City, uh, one of these days I'll get out there with her. Uh, the, the one thing I have got to do is go to the memorial and go to the museum and and just take a day to kind of process all of that this major event in my life that truly pushed me into a life of service uh i I absolutely believe that because it was the catalyst for so many other things i mean my friends who went to afghanistan and iraq with the military they were there uh largely because of 9-11 you know you can kind of trace it all back to this one this one catalyst event but I mean I can remember my my fifth grade teacher Dorothy Gukert I I strongly doubt she's listening to this podcast but maybe um, if anybody knows her tell her to to give a listen but yeah my third she was my third and fifth grade teacher she was from Long Island Uh, she did not shed one tear she did not her voice never wavered Um, you know there were kids that might you know their parents weren't bringing them to school that day Um, or, or even that, that whole week, uh, we're 10, 11 years old, again, trying to figure out just what the hell just happened. Uh, what does this mean? And she managed to either, she did her level best to explain to us what was happening. And then she was on the phone. If she wasn't doing that, she was on the phone calling her family back in, in New York and Long Island and making sure that everybody that she knew and loved and cared for was okay. Um, and that woman still to this day, I'm 31 years old. 
uh, still a like shining example, a beacon of, of leadership and strength. So I, I don't know. I don't know if she's ever going to listen to this, but uh, I have nothing but uh, high respect for the New Yorkers. Uh, and now these these Chicago cops who day after fucking day, the iron workers, the construction workers, I it, couldn't believe it. it. It it just like it's absolutely mind blowing to think about what it took to uh, to go down there time and time and time again. Well, I mean, for me, it was my job. I got a 120 pound dog before I go in. Um, yeah, for me, it was my job, you know? And it's like, again, like I, I had so much time in by then. And, and you know this, I mean, cops can compartmentalize things. Otherwise yeah. you'd go nuts. So, I mean, I had seen so many bad things that, I mean, it was like, it didn't overwhelm me. I think, I, I think if you're in it long enough, every cop's got like a circuit breaker that just basically, like, all right, this is bad. I'm going to fight through this. I'll get through it. You know what I mean? You don't let it overwhelm you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, did you, uh, did, did you know anybody who, uh, who was killed that day? Yeah. A couple of guys, um, right off the top of my, top of my head, three, four, probably about four or five people. I knew a couple of cops and then a couple of civilians that were in the, in the building. What did it, uh, what did it look like for the NYPD in the aftermath of nine 11? What was the, uh, I mean, I have to imagine that if something like that happened to my agency, there would just be, I mean, we lose one officer at my agency. We're about 250, 270 sworn. Uh, last year we buried three guys and not all at once, but it like, there's just a fucking black cloud hanging over the department. What, what did the NYPD look like? What was the, what was the feel? What was the vibe in the, the days and weeks after nine 11? Well, different units did different things. Like I remember my unit, um, we had 120 guys. I mean, everybody kicked in a hundred bucks and, and you know, they, they, they were, we were donating a lot of money to the families. I remember that was going on. Um, yeah, I mean, it was bad. I mean, the fire department, Jesus, I mean, we lost 15 people or something like that. I mean, the fire department lost Christ. I don't even remember, but it was a lot. Like, God, FD lost shit. I think it was over three. I actually, I hang on. I have, we have memorial badges at my agency that we get to wear uh, every September. And I think it's got, it's got the numbers on it, but it's over in my little, my little box. Yeah, it was over a here. lot. Yeah, so 343 firefighters and then 71 police officers. And I think that's through NYPD, PAPB, um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, FBI. Yeah, yeah. Started, they lost a bunch. Yeah, yeah. This is, I won't post this because it's got uh, like agency information on it, but I don't know if you can kind of kind of see that. We, yeah. get, we get a lot of compliments on them. They came out really well. I mean, uh, I'm not one to spend, you know, hundred dollars on every, every badge that we get, uh, even though I, I lie to myself and I do that anyways, but the, our nine 11 Memorial badges are, are pretty top notch. If you're at an agency somewhere, if you're listening to this, have your quartermaster, whoever, um, through the summer, ask them if, uh, if you guys can look into nine 11 Memorial badges, they're, uh, they're, they're special. They're near and dear to the heart of, I think every, every police officer, um, but, uh, but you were, I mean, you were saying, I mean, you, you lost, uh, you know, so many officers, um, but, but yeah, what was, 
kind of what was the vibe? I mean, you, as you went to work every day, the work's got to get done, right? The calls are still coming in. People still need cops. Well, yeah. I, well, I'll tell you a funny story. Like a couple of days after, um, we had done like a 12 or 15 hour shift. It was later in the afternoon and we had a, um, we had a Dodge minivan. We had like an undercover minivan. So we had the door slid open just to let air. The AC wasn't typical NYPD. The AC wasn't working in the car. So we got the van, the door slid open. We're in uniform. We're going up the West side highway, which is, um, runs alongside of Manhattan. It's not really a highway, but that's what they call it. And, People are cheering us and holding up signs I'm like, wow, this is the first time in 15 years or 14 years someone has actually been appreciative of us. We were back in the Bronx like five minutes later and a gypsy cab gave us the finger and cut us off. I said, look at this. <laughs> 12 miles later, we're in the Bronx. We were scumbags again. I'm like, it's back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my brother-in-law was a cop. Uh, uh, granted, he was out in California. Well, he's still a cop, but he remembers working through 9-11 and, and – uh, you know, kind of a, a similar thing in that to, to many people, I mean, you, there was nothing you could do wrong. Um, you know, you couldn't buy your cup of coffee. You couldn't buy yourself lunch anywhere or dinner. Um, but he said it didn't didn't take too terribly long. And in certain neighborhoods, it didn't fucking matter anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, it changed real quick. It was, um, yeah, it was short lived. Let's just put it that way. And, and you spoke a little bit uh, right at the beginning about uh uh, you know, the kind of the different mayors that you've seen through, uh, through your career. Um, I mean, from, from an outside perspective, hats off to Rudy Giuliani and his response to, to nine 11. Um, uh, was that something that, uh, w- was there a modicum of pride felt when, when, you know, everybody got up and started speaking, you got, you got him, you got then president Bush, um, I mean, was was there a moment where, where you kind of looked around and went like, holy shit, I, I really work for one of the best agencies in the world? Nah, I mean, I always knew that. But here's the thing with Rudy. Rudy was a good mayor. A lot of cops, NYP guys. But here's the thing. When Rudy was when Rudy was running for election the first time, Rudy jumped on the coattails of the NYPD. Rudy had NYPD guys driving him, doing a security detail. And Rudy did promise us the moon once he got in. Rudy got elected the first term. He probably looked at the books and goes, Jesus Christ, I can't give these guys this raise. I, I just, I can't. It, it's, it's, it's just not New York. And New York was not doing well financially. So what wound up happening is we had a, a, a law firm with our union. And uh, all the law firm, let's just say, was doing some shady business practices. And more than likely, Rudy a former federal prosecutor had his friends at the Department of Justice look into this law firm and the guys in the law firm went to jail. So we got a shitty contract as a result of it. And, <laughs> and a lot of cops never got over that. But here's the thing with Rudy. He couldn't give us the big raise, but if you made arrests, you could make all the overtime you want. If you worked, they were willing to pay. It was It's not like now where they nickel and dime you. With Rudy, if you were making arrests and doing your job, they leave you alone. And he backed the cops. It's not like nowadays. If there was a shooting or something, he was right in there. He was going to the hospital to see the cop. I mean, the press hated him. And his last term before 9-11, people don't realize this. The press, it's a lot of ways the same with the press did with Trump. They loved Rudy when he was running for mayor because they never thought he was going to win. Once he got in, the, the press was, they wouldn't, even if, as he was cleaning up New York, 
they wouldn't fucking stop. They were into his marriage. The poor guy had uh, prostate cancer. They were showing the prostate procedure he was going to have. I mean, they just didn't fucking stop with this guy. They were you know, following his kids around. Then 9-11 came around. Then all of a sudden, he was the greatest thing since fucking sliced bread again. You know, he so he was, they loved him, they hated him, and then they loved him on his way out the door. Now they hate him again. But um, Rudy, I mean, he's a tough cookie, man. I mean, he hung in there, and, and he was great for New York. He was the right man for the right time. Yeah, I, I, I have heard uh, heard something similar to that, and I think that, that you kind of hit the nail on the head. He was where, right place, right time. He was where he needed to be, right? And, and he was where New York needed him to be. Uh, is, is, just, you know, a lot of people don't like him, but he, he just, he doesn't bullshit. Like he'll, he just tells you how it is. You might not like the answer, but that's the answer. Right. You know what I mean? Not, um, I don't know. I, I liked him. Like my brother, I got a younger brother who was a cop. My brother, my younger brother didn't make a lot of arrests. He was more of an inside guy. My brother can't stand him. Oh, he, you know, he fucked us with the contract. I'm like, if you worked, you got paid, you know? So <laughs> I don't know. I like Rudy, so that's just my two cents. Yeah, I do want to uh, want to take some time here uh, and talk about uh, the books that you've written. You've got uh, uh, Through the Looking Glass. You've got a handful of other books that kind of give the behind-the-scenes, good, bad, or otherwise, of the NYPD. I mean, there's a story in one of them about a uh, legendary detective. I believed he was called El Diablo, and he... Uh, uh, acquired a horse and buggy. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, he stole it. Um, El Diablo, was an, he, was, he was Irish. He was an Irish guy, but he was, the, the Spanish cops used to call him El Diablo because if you worked with him, chances are you were either going to rehab, getting a divorce, or you were converting to Christianity because he, he was just, he was a lot of fun to be around. But he was such a partier that, like, he was always in trouble. But nothing ever stuck to him. It was like we used to say he must have the fucking Prince of Darkness running interference with him because he never got in trouble for all his fucking antics. So the best story about El Diablo is he's drinking in a bar in, in um, over by Central Park, and he's talking to a couple of floozies at the bar, and one of these horse and carriage guys comes in to use the bathroom, and. Uh, the guy's wearing like the stovetop hat and he's got like a felt thing on. So, well, Diablo's breaking his balls as the guy comes in. He goes, Hey, do you mind if I take Seabiscuit for a ride? And the guy goes, Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, well, Diablo tells the two girls, Come on, ladies, let's go. I know him. He loads the two girls into the horse and carriage, moves the blocks, gives the horse a crack in the ass with the whip, and the horse starts going. And the two girls in the back, they're impressed. And he's, you know, going down 50 whatever street by Central Park. And the horse quickly figures out that that's not the guy that knows what he's doing. There's an asshole behind the wheel or behind the reins of the horse. The horse says, fuck this. I'm going to the barn to get some oats. So the horse starts now blowing lights, which is dangerous. <laughs> you got a horse and carriage blowing fucking lights in midtown Manhattan. And the horse is heading for Central Park to cut through the park to get to the west side where the barns are, the stable. So the girls are in the back seat of this thing. Let us the fuck out. And El Diablo can't stop it. Right? Because he's from the Bronx. He doesn't know anything about horses and carriages. He's drunk. <laughs> I guess that was DUI, too, on top of it. But anyway, so he's racing towards Central Park. Two other handsome cab operators see their friend's stolen horse and carriage going like, hey, that's not Billy on, on that thing. They start chasing it. So this it's like a, a Ben-Hur chariot race into Central Park. 
they kind of corral him. Like one gets in front of El Diablo, one gets in back, and they slow him down enough that they stop the horse and carriage, right? The two girls get out of the horse and carriage. They're like, fuck this. I don't know if they were street workers or just bluesies, but they ran into the woods never to be seen again of Central Park. The handsome cab operators think, you know, this guy just drunk stole their friend's cab. They start beating the shit out of El Diablo. He's pleading with him. I'm a cop. Don't hit me. They get a hold of the, the owner. The operator shows up. He wants to press charges. And El Diablo tells, I'll take you to an ATM right now. I'll take out 500 bucks. Just let's make this go away. And the guy goes, you're going to give me 500 bucks? He goes, yep. Went to the ATM, counted out 500 bucks and $20 bills. And that was the end of it. <laughs> so he stole off the carriage through Central Park. Paid $500. Packed around a little bit. You know, he got a little bit of a tune-up. But, you know, 500 bucks and it was all forgiven. <laughs> Uh, the uh, the reviews on your books all say uh, that uh, that the story. I mean, people just don't stop laughing with some of these stories. Uh, there is one review for the El Diablo story that says you've got to read this three or four times because you won't get through it the first time because you're crying so much. So yeah, I mean, there's more of the story and there's more about El Diablo, but uh, he's still alive. Actually, I don't talk to him anymore. Not that we had a falling out. I just lost touch, but we have a friend in common every now and then I ask how he's doing. He goes, it's safe because it just never ends. And you've, uh, uh, you've got five books. Your, your sixth is coming out. I know uh, three of your books are sort of these, like these behind the scenes, uh, NYPD books. what are your other two? Well, the four, four about the NYPD. Four, okay. Um, I, I wrote a comedy called Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. It's about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life expectancy. And my new book coming out now is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's just stories about my life growing up in the Bronx. And it opens up with me getting chased out of a confessional, which really did happen when I was about 14 years old. So it's just growing up in the Bronx and what led me to the NYPD. And, and what... Uh, I, I, I have to imagine that you do not, nobody leaves a police career um, without uh, uh, maybe a little bit of post-traumatic stress, maybe a little bit of an alcohol dependency, uh, but a shitload of funny stories and just things like you would not believe the things that you see in your first year as a police officer. And here you amplify that over 20 to 25 years. What was it that, that made you finally say, fuck, I got to write a book about this? You know, I was retired and, you know, I've got friends down here that aren't cops and they're like, you should write a book. And I'm like, nah, who the fuck's going to bought read one? And they go, I'm telling you, A, you know how to tell a story and B, you've got an unlimited amount of stories. So I was apprehensive about writing a book about the New York City Police Department because 90% of my friends are retired cops. I, and, and the two things I said, if I'm going to do this, the two things I didn't want to do was I didn't want to get anybody in trouble or divorce. So date the names the locations you know what i mean it's like uh, and even there's people i mean you know this there's guys you're going to work with or work for that are assholes and i'm I, they're tell-all books but i don't blast anybody i'm not sour grapes i had a wonderful career i choose either not to write about those people or if i do i don't bury them fair enough that and that's a i think that's a good you know a, a kind of a good friend a good co-worker um you know, type of uh, type of mentality. Uh, what did the writing process look like? I mean, you've got cops all over the place, myself included, who have an interest in 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 writing some stuff down and uh, you know, kind of walk us through your your process, if you will. 
Well, I, I can't write in chronological order. I just refuse to do it. So my books, you can pick up my books and just start thumbing through it. There'll be a chapter with a theme, be it police corruption, practical jokes, the lunatics that I worked with, El Diablo. So, I mean, it's, it's not heavy-duty reading. They're just short stories about things and, you know, creative criminals and, like, Grand Theft Auto, um, that book. I mean, that's strictly my 10 years in the auto crime division and sophisticated car, you know, car scams and creative criminals and car theft rings and cases I worked on. And the other books, you know, I mean, they have embarrassing things that happened to me and my friends. And it's just, it, it, it's cop humor. I mean, I know cops love my books and there's a lot of people that, you know, either wanted to be cops or fascinated with live PD or the television show cops. They like those books too, because it gives you a behind the scenes thing of, What's going on in a precinct? And, and you touched on one thing that that I haven't really touched on on this show. I haven't had the opportunity. Uh, would like to take a few minutes to talk about it. This this like police corruption that that you've dealt with. I mean, you you find it everywhere from probably the smallest town. You know, it's a sheriff and a deputy to large agencies. Uh, I've talked about LAPD and the the Ramparts Division scandal uh, uh, when I was talking about LAPD crash. But, uh, I mean, in your time in NYPD, what are some of the more stand out, you know, like, holy shit, I can't believe these assholes did that? Well, okay, so a department as large as ours, like I said, 35 to 40,000 people. Back in the old days, they did a really good job of screening you. I mean, there was countless psychological interviews. I remember they came and talked to my parents, my neighbors. They went to all my jobs, you know, trying to get a beat on who they were hiring. Um. But guys go, you know, but you've got people that take the job. They do a good job. I would say 98% of the people that are coming through there aren't going to steal anything, aren't going to take anything. But you've got that 1% or 2% that either A, they took the job and they're just sitting back waiting for the right opportunity to pull something off, or B, they get it. They, they didn't take the job for that, but they get into financial hardship. They get bitter. Something happens in their life, and they're like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm, I'm going to go this way. I worked with a guy um, very early in my career. I mean, I think I had less than, than, than two years on. Nice guy, but he was always in financial hock. He was married to one woman, knocked up another girl, had another girlfriend. And I remember, like, you know, I'm 22, 23 years old, and he goes, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you lend me five grand? Now, $5,000 is a lot of money to ask a friend nowadays. In 1988, I was like, I don't have $5,000. What do you need five grand for? I'm thinking of getting a Corvette. I'm like, I said, you better get your fucking priorities straight. But he was a nice guy, funny. I never saw him do anything wrong or anything. He goes and works in another precinct and, uh, you know, keeps getting deeper and deeper in hock. What nobody knew was he had a cousin that was a drug dealer. And uh, he shows up on a DEA wiretap. He's basically on the weekends going out to Queens, uh, out, out where the Colombians are out in, out in Queens, and picking up kilos of coke and bringing them back into the Bronx. And the DEA stops him, and when they catch him, they catch him with a couple of kilos and a stolen gun. And the only reason he's carrying a stolen gun is if he had to use it. And then he's just going to dump it, right? So I mean, he's bad. So he turns around and tells, you know, the DEA, he goes, yeah, you got me, but time out. I know about all this police corruption inside the New York City Police Department. So my job jumps on it. And what they do is they arrest him, but they let him go 
And what they do is over the weekend, they put them in a cast and they say, all right, here's the story. You're going to, you're going to go to work and you're going to say you broke your arm and we're going to, you're not going to have any guns. We're going to say you're on modified or restricted duty. And you're going to record these conversations with these corrupt cops. Okay. So what he does is he goes into work with the bullshit broken arm and inside the cast, they put a couch, a listening device. I don't remember if it was recording or, but basically he jammed up an entire precinct over bullshit. I mean, there wasn't corruption. It was him, but he tried using that, hoping to rope guys in and he got a lot of guys in trouble for petty anti-things, but not corruption. Ultimately, the wild thing was a couple of years after that, I was on a trial for something else and he was in the courthouse and he, you know, obviously he didn't want it. He shaved his head. He was like, where he looked like a guy that you see like on a bank robbery poster with the bullshit mustache. Like, like I did a fucking double take. Like I, I worked in a radio call with this guy for six months and like four or five years later, like I did a double, like I almost didn't recognize him. I go, what the fuck happened to you? And he goes, you don't want to know. And he just walked away from me. He was testifying against somebody and the case went nowhere because it was a bullshit case. But there are, I mean, you had, I didn't see these, these guys were around when I was around, but they were in Brooklyn. You had the mafia cops. You had um, two detectives. One was in major case. One was in the detective squad. And basically they were providing a capo in the Lucchese crime family. They were doing background checks for him. They were doing hits for him. And, uh, I mean, that's a fascinating story. I mean, those guys were about as bad as it get when you're riding around, you know, killing people for a mobster. I mean, it's, I mean, that's as dark as it can get. Yeah, absolutely. You lose the trust of your coworkers pretty fast when you end up in fucking handcuffs because you've been out murdering people on behalf of the mafia. They're bad. They, 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 they kill you in a heartbeat. And it, uh, and it makes our job that much more difficult because oh, now, the, yeah. now the public doesn't know who to trust, you know? Um, you no, uh, now everybody's a scumbag. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You, you you want the public to know that they can come to you, and when you've got uh, when you got people up to shady shit, uh, and then the public finds out about it, as they you know rightfully should, uh, your your uh, your life ends up becoming a lot more challenging. And you probably didn't even know the damn guy, you know, in some of these cases at least. So, uh, yeah, it. Uh, man, I, I, I get, I, I need to get, uh, your books on order here from Amazon. That's literally we're hanging up and I'm putting my order in, uh, aside from Amazon, is there, uh, any other place where, uh, people can find your books at, where do people find you? Where do people find Vic? Where do people get more of Vic's stories? Well, all my books, um, are, are on Amazon. There's all my paperbacks that are 10, $10 and two ninety nine ebook, uh, download. Uh, if they want to get in touch with me, you can follow me on Twitter at VicFerrari50 and Instagram's the same thing at VicFerrari50. I got a Facebook page, but I barely go on there. But um, yeah, I mean, just go into Amazon Books and type in Vic Ferrari, or you know, you were nice enough to list some of the titles, and uh, you know, pick up one of my books. I try to keep the price point down. All my books are about 240 pages; they're light reads, but. You want to know anything about the New York City Police Department or what goes on behind the scenes? That's where to go. Have you? And I know you said you you made an effort to not like put people on blast or dime them out. Have you had any NYPD cops come at you and or come at you about about these books and 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 what the fuck? Hey man, why are you writing this stuff? Or has everybody been been pretty cool with it? No, the reception. No, it's funny you should say because that's what I thought was coming. And all my friends were like, oh, you you, you didn't. Now all my friends are critics. 
you got to write about this guy. Remember that fucking time this happened? <laughs> so like, the only person that got a little bent was Bok Choi, my humble Asian sidekick, because he, he called me out, Lofan, what the fuck? You write about me in book? I'm like, dude, come on. I says, you, you know it's true. I says, it's in, it's in fun. I says, but you know you said a lot of those things. He's like, all right, you know, but I still keep in touch with him. But uh, he was the only one that got a little weird, but he, he's fine. Well, and I... <laughs> I mean, you, you got to expect it if, uh, uh, you know, hey, every cop has done some stupid shit. We've all done something to get made fun of. I can remember a friend of mine trying to, we had an alarm call at like model, uh, a model house in this neighborhood. And he goes to climb over the fucking fence and he climbs over the part of the gate that opens and he doesn't realize that it's unlatched. And so as he climbs onto it, it's like something out of a movie. The gate just starts moving with him underneath it. <laughs> See, if that happened to the NYPD, we would call him Latch. That fucking would follow him for the rest of his life. I'll tell you one more quick story. In my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, the first chapter is called Embarrassing Moments. And it opens up how every cop and every author likes to paint themselves as a hero. We save the day in the nick of time. We have the witty comeback. So there's a story in there early in my career. I stop at Gypsy Camp. There's so much more to it, but I'm going to go quick. Well, I, I pull over this gypsy cab and in the back seat is three amigos with four kilos of coke and they're passing the fucking thing around. The bag opens and I got four kilos of coke. So it's the early 90s. I'm parading around the station house like I won the fucking Stanley Cup with four kilos of coke. All my friends are taking photos. This is great. You know, I, I'm on top of the world. So that night I had to go down to court in New York when you make an arrest that night or the next day. You got to speak to a district attorney to file charges. So I'm in uniform. I go down to the courthouse in the Bronx. It's a shitty neighborhood. And after five o'clock, there's no place really to eat. But they had just opened up this food court across the street from the Bronx courthouse. I'm like, you know, great. I'll go over there and grab something to eat. That little Italian restaurant, I'm sitting there in uniform. I ordered a chicken parm and spaghetti and a soda. I'm sitting there reflecting on the arrest. My chest is all puffed out. Next thing I know, I got to take a dump. Oh, shit. Well, the Bronx courthouse is a fucking dungeon. There's usually no toilet paper. This new food court's got a brand new bathroom. I'll use that one. I go into the men's room. I take off my gun belt. I drop my pants. I put the gun belt on the hook on the back door. Mm -hmm. I drop my pants. I sit on the ball. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And the next thing you know, I hear the fucking bathroom door kick in. And I hear these teenagers. There's four or five of them. They're hitting the hand dryers. They're turning on the sink. They're roughhousing. I'm like, shit. Yeah, I'm in uniform. but My fucking pants are down to the ground, right? <laughs> so I'm like, I better finish. I better hurry up, right? Suddenly the bathroom gets silent. I'm like, did they leave? I'm like, I better get fucking dressed and get out of here, right? Just as I'm about to pull my pants, I look up. One of the kids went into the next stall. He jumped up on the toilet and he's reaching over the wall to grab my gun belt. I said, oh shit. So I jump up with my left hand to pull up my pants. And with my right hand, I grab him around the neck and I pull him. When I pulled him over the wall, I inadvertently pulled him closer to the gun belt. Now he grabs the gun belt. Oh, shit. So now I let go with my left, and I just start fucking pummeling him, right? Let, I'm just punching him. Let go of the gun belt. Let go of the gun belt, right? His friends run into the next stall. They grab his legs. Now I got a tug of war going with this fucking kid. <laughs> and those walls, they're not made for 110, 120-pound kids. The thing is starting to fucking buck, right? He lets go of my gun belt. It hits the ground. I'm still trying to hold on to him, but now he's all sweaty and I tore the shit out of his shirt. He goes over the wall and he goes crashing into his friends in the next stall. I pull up my pants. I put on my gun belt. I go running out 
into the food court, they're gone. And in the book I write, what was I supposed to do at this point? Call the cops on myself? Had I done that, I'd be the fucking laughing stock of the Bronx. So I kept, I chose to keep the story to myself until I got into writing. <laughs> I, I just, uh, I, I have this, this image in my head of a, uh, a cop with no trousers on trying to get into a tug of war with a bunch of teenagers. Yeah, it happened. <laughs> we've all got our, we've all got our embarrassing stories, right? So I, I spent, I started my career. Lar- my city is largely residential where I work and I started on graveyards driving around a neighborhood. Um, and I, I hate myself for telling the story, but I'll probably never live it down, even though there are, I think, two people, and I'm one of them who actually know about it. Um, but since we're telling our funny, embarrassing stories, driving around, and like, if there was nothing going on, uh, you tried to be a good steward of your city, and you'd find an open garage door, go up, hey, knock, knock, police department, your garage door's open, okay, have a good night. About the fourth time I got my ass chewed out for waking somebody up because their garage door was open, I just started walking into the garages. I'd put my business card and the little door hanger thing underneath their windshield wiper. I'd pull the emergency door release and I'd gently lower the garage door down. I found a fucking RV garage and I didn't like account for physics. And and I pull the emergency door release and the fucking door slammed shut to the ground and comes off the tracks. (laughs) And so I am stuck in this person's garage. And I are they home? Oh yeah, no, it's two o'clock in the morning. They're home. And I I like I'm able to lift the door up enough that I can like roll underneath it. Uh, and I'm just standing there flashlight in hand, illuminating me, holding it above my head. And dude comes out with a gun in his hand and he goes like, he's like, what happened, man? What what happened? And I said, no, that, that was me. Your garage door was open. Uh, it is now closed, but, uh, thank you for not shooting me. I almost locked myself in your garage because I'm a dumbass. And he's like, why didn't you just wake me up? Like, oh, fuck, there's no winning in this game. <laughs> no, not. So that is one of my, uh, one of my more embarrassing stories, but, uh, uh, definitely everybody who's listening, get, get your hands on Vic's book. Let's get them sold out, uh, on Amazon there, 10 bucks a piece. You can get them. I was looking at it just before we we called and you know you click on one and it says also bought and it gives you at least I think three or four of them you can buy it at in one go and it like you said 10 bucks a pop get them shipped right to your door find Vic on Instagram and Twitter uh neither of us are on Facebook that much because well it's Facebook um but uh uh definitely get out there get get uh, Vic's books and get yourself some some funny stories and if you're on the job whatever your job may be, I encourage people to keep track of your funnier stories. I got partners that we've, we still bring up shit that happened four or five years ago and it still puts us in stitches. Just the stupid stuff that, that we've seen or, or witnessed or done. So, uh, keep track of it, write it down. Uh, that way you can entertain your kids when they ask what you did for <laughs> so many years of their life. Oh. <laughs> Uh, well, Vic, I, I thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I have one last question for you. Um, you've got a microphone to the world, the, uh, the modern cop podcast. I am blessed to have listeners all over the globe. Um, uh, so you've got a microphone to the world. What does the world need to hear from Vic Ferrari? I think Vic Ferrari said enough. I'm just a guy who had a wonderful career and was lucky enough to figure out how to write books and, I started a second career. You know, it's, um, I'm grateful people buy my books. I'm, I'm grateful people find me interesting. And, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily want to be famous. I just want the money. Yeah. <laughs> 
I like it. Vic, should you ever find yourself out in Arizona, man, please let me know. Uh, it, it occurred to me today that uh, that I, I've met people and, and work with people who have uh, just vast amounts of knowledge and wisdom from their time on the job. And so uh, we're going to start a new segment on uh, the Modern Cop podcast. I haven't come up with a name yet. I'm tentatively calling it Streetwise or Street Wisdom. I haven't decided yet. Um, but I'm going to add a fourth microphone in here just so we can get cops in here to uh, kind of shoot the shit and and, uh, and bring to light uh, just, you know, kind of lessons learned, things like that. So certainly if you were ever out in uh, lovely, sunny, uh, 110 degree Phoenix, Arizona, look me up. I've got a beer waiting for you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, I know I took a couple week hiatus. We've got uh, uh, there I go again saying we it's really just me and the mouse in my pocket. But uh, <laughs> I got more shows coming at you uh, through the summer. We'll have T-shirts and stickers for you as well. Finally, getting uh, getting this thing off the ground. There will be a shop option on the website that has not been done yet, but uh, certainly um uh, if, uh, if anybody wants to come on the show, if anybody thinks that they got some good stories to tell, let me know. Hit me up on Instagram. If you have any questions about the NYPD, I think Vic's your man. He's got books. He's got Instagram. You can hit him up on Twitter uh, and, and uh, he'll uh, he'll he'll spin you a couple yarns and regale you with some wisdom. So, again, Vic, thank you so very much for coming on the show thank you. Uh, to the listeners. Thank you for listening. Uh, the Modern Cop podcast will be back probably next week. Until then, stay safe and I'll see you on the road. 